You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. For today's episode, we're bringing you the audio from a recent live event where Dr. Hellemans and Dr. Davies answered audience-submitted questions about topics ranging from deja vu and dreams to marijuana and monogamy. Welcome to Episode 9, 20 Questions with Kim and Jim. All right, welcome to 20 Questions with Kim and Jim. We've been collecting questions. I want to thank everybody for uh, submitting. Uh, And we talked this morning and uh, picked some ones that we thought would be good for the podcast and that we knew the answers to. (laughs) So we'll just jump right into it uh, because we got a bunch of them. So the first one's from Ryan. Uh, What is the true cause of deja vu? Is it a brief blip of chemical imbalance that makes you think the current moment is a memory or something entirely different? Well, we don't know exactly what causes deja vu, and there are three theories, one of which is very popular and has no evidence for it. So that is that we dreamed it. So this is just what people come up with. They're like, oh, I have deja vu. I must have dreamed it because that's the explanation they come up with for the feeling that something happened before. Um, I I can't find any evidence of that. So there are two theories out there, um, and, you know, it's the brain, so they might both be true. We don't even know. But uh, one is that um, the different hemispheres send signals to the temporal lobe separately, and if those get out of sync or something, then we might experience it twice or something. So the second time, uh, we feel like we've um, felt it before. The more uh, popular theory among scientists seems to be that it is just it's just has to do with memory. So you're in a situation that reminds you of something that happened before. Um, but you don't you can't consciously recall that episode, but you're reminded of it that you have a very strong sense of familiarity. And so they've tried this is very challenging, but they've tried to set up deja vu happening in the laboratory. Right. So uh, and, and rem- having people uh, with. Uh, irretrievable memories, uh, they can sometimes get deja vu feelings. Yeah, I've heard, I've, I have heard that theory most prominently is that you, you get this feeling of deja vu if you have enough, uh, if you can imagine like a face has a certain number of like points or stimuli associated with like your eye shape, your nose shape, your lip shape, your hair color, your, the color of your skin. If you experience enough of those similar points or attributes in another face, uh, it's almost like, well, 18 out of 20 of those points, I'm making these numbers up, uh, are similar enough that you feel like you've seen that face before. So that kind of, I think, resonates with the last theory that you discussed, that it is sort of the, uh, linked to memory in some case, that we have all these sensory memories in our in our brain and that if enough uh, points match up with something that we've already experienced we may feel like we've had that uh, experience before next question is from a high school friend of mine joanne and she writes if one receives a major head trauma as a child uh, fell off a bike and smacked the back of their head on the curb while doing a wheelie now joanne i hope that wasn't you uh, will this prompt early signs of, of Alzheimer's or dementia later in life. So uh, I just want to, at this point, uh, pitch the fact that we do have an entire episode on the topic of concussions and head trauma. Um, so there is a little bit more in-depth um, information within that episode if you want, would like to listen to it. But uh, I can answer it 
kind of uh, we didn't really talk about the the link between uh, head trauma and dementia very much. So I'll expand on it a little bit here. But essentially, it's important for people to know what exactly happens when you have a head trauma or a mild or severe uh, um, uh, brain injury. Is that essentially you're doing damage to your brain cells, right? So on, on the mildest form, you're you're kind of uh, promoting uh, what's called shear force on on the neurons, and they kind of rip apart. And what happens is that uh, releases a cascade of something known as glutamate, which is excitotoxic, or it will kill off cells around it. So you can have a localized site of injury where you do have damage to to those uh, to that brain that those brain regions. But the brain is so plastic, and the brain has a great ability to to um, repair and regenerate to a certain extent. So we don't necessarily, depending on how severe the brain trauma is, you don't necessarily lose function, right? So in mild concussive uh, episodes don't involve loss of function versus like severe head trauma. Obviously, you do have uh, some loss of function. But say you did trip and fall and you hit your head pretty badly and you, you had a headache for a while, maybe you felt nauseous. Um, does that lead to dementia? Probably not. Uh, there, there is some links that if people have repeated mild concussive episodes, so for example, like boxing, uh, this can lead to, and I say can, uh, uh, not will, uh, lead to something called trauma chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is a form of dementia. So with these mild concussive blows that are experienced repeatedly, you can incur uh, a mild uh, neuronal damage that over time spreads and spreads and spreads and can produce uh, uh, symptoms not unlike Alzheimer's or dementia. So a good example of that is Muhammad Ali, who had um, uh, developed uh, Parkinsonian uh, symptoms, which is a form of dementia. So if you have one Smack to the head? Probably not. And I say probably because in science we never say yes or no. We say maybe, right? Uh, but the reality is, if it was, especially if you were a child, you're much less likely to develop any of these, um, like, f prolonged or chronic outcomes because the the um, the child's brain is much more plastic and can repair itself much more easily than the adult brain. So don't worry, Joanne. Dementia is not upon you. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. This one's from Chris. Do dreams really have relative meaning? For example, if I dream I am being chased, does that signify something in my actual life? Um, so we picked this because everybody's interested in dreams. And uh, every time I talk about imagination, all the questions are about dreams. Um, one of the things that's really interesting about dreams that we don't often notice is that they're not really about our day-to-day -day life. Like, my life is mostly reading and writing in front of a computer. I never dream about reading and writing in front of a computer, right? It's always some social thing or I'm trying to manage seven people or I'm being chased. Um, you know, and, and so psychologists use these cues and or these clues about how dreams differ from real life to try to find out what they're for and this and that. So... Uh, they've also done a lot of studies trying to get people to dream about stuff. So they'll uh, have them play with balloons before they go to bed and then see if they dream about balloons. And the answer is no, they don't. Uh, it's very hard to get somebody to dream about something that just happened to them. They tend to dream about what, you know, whatever. So are they affected by your life? Well, yes. All your imagination comes from your memories. Where else would it come from? But um, it's often uh, very... Uh, it's not as specific, right? 
people who have very traumatic lives, people who grow up in war-torn areas, they have what I've read a, described as a phantasmagoria of nightmare. Like they just mm. have lots and lots of nightmare. People who have really good lives have fewer nightmares. There's a very popular notion that dreams are metaphorical, right? So you'll dream about, you know, well, the TV show, The Sopranos, the, his Tony Sopranos therapist dreamt about a bulldog defending her and, and the, the show made it very clear that she was actually dreaming about Tony, but it was a dog. So does it, is it, do, do we dream in metaphors? This is actually very hard to study in science. It's very hard to come up with a study that shows that the bear you dreamed about in your dream really meant your dad. Like that's, <laughs> that's very hard. Like people therapeutically find it beneficial to like discover and like the, they'll interpret it that way and they might find that helpful, but does the brain, d d does your mind like say, I need to think about my dad, I'm gonna use a bear. We're very far from knowing that that happens. However, there were lots of, after 9-11 in New York, New York City, a lot of people had dreams that were superficially like 9-11, but not about planes and uh, buildings, right? So there's a higher incidence of certain kind, I can't remember what exactly they were like, but it, that gives some evidence, which is very hard to get for the metaphor idea. Yeah, so on that note, I, I think there is evidence certainly in um, neuroscience-esque uh, studies that we tend to dream about things that match our current emotional state. So if you're currently anxious, and I always think about this like when I was a student and I was studying for exams, I would always have anxiety dreams. Like I'd show up and I'd be I'd have studied for the wrong exam. And it's like, oh, I'm, it's my stats exam. I studied for chemistry. Um, and now that I'm a professor, I actually have professor anxiety dreams. And the most re recent one was that I'd forgotten to bring the scantrons. So yes, your, your profs suffer too, which, which I actually have, have, have had happen. And there's actually one of the major theories of dreaming is that um, we dream in anticipation to um, practice problem solving. Right, so uh, maybe that dream where I did forget the scantrons, and in it I, you know, called up my departmental admin and got her to bring them over, was a practice for when I actually did forget the scantrons. Right. What would you do? What yeah. would I do if yeah. I forgot the scantrons? Yeah. Right. Anyway, uh, so next question is from Julie. Uh, with the lightening of legal restrictions in recent years, many people are turning to cannabis as a natural treatment for conditions like ADD, depression, and anxiety. How does cannabis work with the brain's neurochemistry to address? these problems and what do we know about the long-term effects of cannabis on the brain? So great question, Julie, and I get it. And to be fair, I, I mean, this is very top of mind for all of us right now. We're, what, two weeks from legalization. This is uh, a complete and utter, uh, we live in interesting times, and, and I can say this, this will, uh, I'm really interested to see how uh, this is going to pan out. And I do have some research experience with cannabis. Uh, and one of my close friends is actually the head of the Canadian Cannabis Consortium. Uh, so what I can, I'm going to, first of all, also mention that we do have an entire episode on marijuana, if you're interested. And I do talk about the effects of marijuana in the brain. But I did want to address this question because, again, I, I, I keep feeling like, we need to be talking more and more about cannabis and we need to be really looking at the science because right now there is so much misinformation out there. And the reality is a lot of people believe that cannabis is a cure-all and that it can cure things like ADD, depression and anxiety. But you know what else can cure depression and anxiety or not 
cure but treat, heroin and cocaine and all other substances that will make you feel happy will also get rid of your anxiety and your depression very quickly. And we need to be mindful of the fact that cannabis is still a drug. While it does have therapeutic benefits, uh, a lot of the therapeutic benefits are not related to mental health uh, uh, disorders, and certainly not for ADD. In fact, there is evidence that it does worsen ADD symptoms. And while, yes, it can acutely relieve you of depression and anxiety, it will also promote further worsening of your, your depression and anxiety. And we say in the, in the addiction world, this is the concept of the shifting baseline. If your anxiety is up here and you take something and it brings you down here, the next day your anxiety will be even higher because the brain will be compensating for the exogenous effects on the same uh, uh, neurotransmitter systems that are involved in regulating pleasure, right? So your body naturally has a homeostatic balance for how much pleasure uh, uh, it is experiencing. And when you take something that enhances that, the brain will bring its own uh, natural systems down to compensate for that. So uh, hopefully I'm, I'm not answering this question too in-depth because it is... Um, we have talked a lot about it. I, well, I did talk about it in the marijuana episode, um, but certainly there is. Uh, um, we have a lot of work to to do in terms of unpinning some of the therapeutic benefits of cannabinoid products. I'm not saying that there aren't any. Absolutely, there will be. Uh, uh, it's important to distinguish between cannabidiol or CBD and delta nine THC or tetrahydrocannabidiol because. Uh, the delta 9 THC is the psychoactive ingredient. That's what's going to make you high. And the CBD is has less of a psychoactive effect and possibly more of a therapeutic benefit. So we need to do more research studying the differences between these. Uh, and certainly the long-term effects of cannabis on the brain, there is uh, a number of now human studies that are coming out looking using techniques uh, from neuroimaging. So things like where we can uh, scan how much gray matter or neurons are in the brain after chronic use. We can also look at how much how the white matter or the connections between cells changes with long-term use. And what we see is low behold, chronic cannabis use decreases the number of cells in a region of the brain known as the, the prefrontal cortex, which are the very, very front of their brain. So I've got my brain model here. You guys at home, you can't see that, but I do have a brain model. But the very front of your brain, which is in, involved in decision and planning, goal-directed behavior. Uh, but it's we don't know yet if it's that individuals who ha already had pre-existing low levels of or low volumes of brain matter were the ones that were more likely to chronically use. So we still have lots of research to do uh, on this topic, but certainly we need to be mindful of what the science is telling us. We can't just turn to Google and expect to find some really um, intelligent responses. Unless Google turns up our podcast and we're good. Then we're good. <laughs> All right, next question. What happens to our brain when we daydream? Okay, so we talked about dreaming a little bit. Let's talk about daydreaming. Um, and daydreaming is usually defined as uh, when your mind starts thinking about something other than the task that is physically immediately in front of you. Uh, and um, fairly recently, we've discovered something that is called the default mode network. And that is what gets particularly activated in the brain during daydreaming and planning and some other kinds of things. And it tends to um, get activated when you sense that your current activities don't require all of your attention. So you're standing on the bus looking out the window or 
uh, you're doing a boring task or you're uh, maybe maybe you're in a boring lecture and you're, you just find your mind, you know, not our lectures, but other other professors, um, you, you find that other uh, other ideas come to your head. And usually what's going on when people daydream, they're often thinking about the future. That is a very, a very common thing. And uh, they're making plans and they're thinking maybe they're worried about it or maybe they're fantasizing about it or maybe they're um, trying to make contingencies or something like that. And this is really special because humans are, as far as we know, the only natural creatures that can plan, can really make uh, like complex plans one after another. And uh, uh, so, yes, that's... Uh, that's what happens with our daydreaming. We, we, when, we, when our mind finds um, some extra time to use some processing to help with long-term goals, uh, the default network kicks into gear, and we daydream. All right, this next question is from my dear friend Vikan. How does memory work? Well, that's a... We're going to do, do it in three minutes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, memory is, is absolutely one of the most studied concepts in psychology, cognitive science, neuroscience. Uh, I think there are many faculty members that have their entire career devoted to the study of memory. Um, and so what I'm going to do is actually turn it over to Jim first, because as a cognitive scientist, there is much more that we know that's been answered from cognitive science and psychology. And then I'll follow up with a little bit about what we know in terms of neuroscience. Right. So, um, there's a lot of mystery about um, how memory works, even though it consumes an enormous amount of uh, cognitive psychology's resources. Uh, but some of the ideas that we have are that we've got several stores of memory. Uh, sometimes they get called buffers. Uh, one is, a, uh, is for vision, and it's very, very short term. And there's one for sound, too, and we don't know if there are those for the other senses. But you might have experienced, like, somebody says something and you're paying attention to something else. And then you sort of, like, hear what they said a couple seconds later, and then you, like, laugh. But you hadn't really interpreted the words. You just sort of recorded the sound almost like a tiny, like a, a uninterpreted, right? That's like a sensory memory. Um, there's also a, what's called a short-term memory which is a temporary store where uh, it can stay for a few minutes to a few years before it gets turned into long-term memory, where presumably it stays for the rest of your life, as far as we know. And then we've got, from a whole other bu different bunch of researchers, this idea of working memory, which is where you can take stuff from long-term memory and sort of think of it as like a desk in front of you. Like when you're working on a project, you'll put the papers and stuff you need on the desk. Uh, your working memory is a little like that, except it only has spots for four things. So hmm. that's what I'm going to say about cognitive psychology and memory. All right. Well, I will add to that. So Jim described the different forms of memory. And we do know from the uh, field of neuroscience that the, these memories, uh, these forms of memory are governed by different brain regions, right? And we know this from people who have had brain damage, either accidentally or uh, by sometimes with surgeries that we've had, um, we, often with patients who have uh, certain forms of epilepsy, you need to remove certain brain tissue in order to 
uh, prevent the chronic seizing. And so, uh, as Jim was saying, we do have this sort of sensory memories, and those are stored in sensory cortical regions, right? So uh, when you smell something, the smell comes in, your olfactory nerve uh, goes into regions of your brain that are involved primarily with smell. It's uh, parts of your limbic system that are involved in emotions. With your vision, when you see something, it goes into your, your occipital lobe or your occipital cortex, and so on. And then there's uh, the working memory or short-term memory, which is your frontal lobe and then your uh, emotional memory. So we have uh, certain memories that have a huge emotional content. And uh, we call those sometimes flashbulb memories because uh, like, you know, uh, we're, we're old enough. I can remember where I was, for example, uh, when 9-11 happened because it was such a hugely emotional event uh, that, that um, the brain wants to remember these things, right? These things tend to be very important. Uh, so we have a huge activation of your, what's called the amygdala, which is one of the main structures involved in coding for and remembering and, rec and recalling emotional memories. And then our long-term memory storage is another region in the brain known as the hippocampus, and it's a seahorse uh, shaped structure in the kind of the medial temporal lobe, which is kind of uh, right in the side of your of your brain, which is right underneath your temp temples, hence the temporal lobe. And we know this because of a very famous patient known as HM. Uh, HM uh, had seizures and epilepsy, and he uh, uh, was a patient actually at the Montreal Neurological Institute, and he received what was called a bilateral temporal lobectomy. They literally took away uh, most of the brain tissue on both, that's hence the bilateral sides of, of the temporal lobe. And a very famous uh, a neuropsychologist by the name of Brenda Milner, who is still alive and still doing research as far as I know, at, I think she was almost 100 or she may have been 98 or something. She's still working out of uh, the Montreal Neurological Institute. She quickly discovered that HM was not able to form any long-term memories, and he had had a little bit of loss of memories from prior to the surgery. So every time she would walk into the room, she would have to reintroduce herself because he was no longer able to form those long-term memories. And now we know that a lot of the long-term memory storage is in the region of the brain, known as the hippocampus. But that doesn't answer the question of how memories are formed. And the the reality is we really don't have a great idea. Uh, at a neurobiological level, the best uh, answer we have is from another very famous scientist by the name of Eric Kandel, who was, uh, he's an American scientist and he was working with uh, a very tiny organism known as a, as a neplesia or a sea slug. And he discovered that there is indeed um, at the synaptic level, when, when memories are formed, we tend to release a neurotransmitter known as glutamate, which is kind of like a, a sticky, you can imagine it like glue of, uh, of, the, of the human brain. It's involved uh, very much in learning and memory. Um, but then how those, that neurobiology is transferred into the memory of your, of your grandmother's face, we still don't really know very much. We know that it probably involves circuits. There's no grandmother cell, right? So if you lose that one cell, you're gonna suddenly forget your grandmother. No, uh, it involves complex uh, formations of, of cells that are active uh, and, and probably the best uh, person that I can cite in terms of what we know is a guy named Donald Hebb, who is considered the father of modern uh, neuroscience. And again, he's, he came out of McGill University and he wrote a book called The Organization of Behavior that was published in 1949. And Donald Hebb wrote, cells that fire together, wire together. And before we even knew anything about how neurons 
really worked. Uh, this is 1949, after all. He predicted that, sh sure enough, when one cell A is active, so cell A, the imagine I'm oversimplifying, the, your grandmother's face, and cell B is active at the same time, your grandmother's name or her smell, those cells are firing together. Over time, you just need your, your, the face of your grandmother's face to activate the smell, right, or the, the memory of your grandmother's smell. So again, this is highly simplistic, but it, essentially that is the best of what we know in terms of how neuroscience can explain memory formation. So there were quite a number of questions about memory. So it makes us think we probably need to do a whole show on memory because uh, Joanna asked, how do I remember music lyrics to random songs, but what, not why I opened the refrigerator? Now, I'm sure most of us can experience this, right? You walk into a grocery store, you're like, ah, oh, why don't I remember anything that, unless you've written a list, uh, why, why, why is it that I walk in and I can't remember anything? But you can remember like your, your best friend's phone number from when you were in grade four. And, and the answer really lies in what I just said about how there are different parts of the brain that govern different types of memories, right? So uh, uh, if this was my class, I would quiz you and say, what do you think uh, is involved in the memory for like, oh, I opened the fridge, what am I doing in front of the fridge? Uh, but we're doing a live podcast, so I won't quiz you. Um, but it is your frontal lobe, right? And so your frontal lobe is, is that area of the brain that's responsible for working memory or keeping memory online, right? So, uh, you know, you're rehearsing all your grocery list. If you haven't written it down, okay, I need eggs, I need milk, I need broccoli. You walk into the store, you see something else, it diverts your attention. You're not rehearsing anymore, and then all of a sudden, poof, it's gone, right? So your, your frontal lobe or that working memory is most susceptible to interruption or degradation because your frontal lobe is often wanting to pay attention to other salient or novel things in your environment versus music lyrics is really interesting um, because music, there's a wealth of evidence to show that when we put things to music, like poetry, if you're trying to memorize uh, uh, lines of a play, if you have a tempo or a beat to it, you will you you are able to, better able to remember it compared to if you don't have that kind of tempo. Uh, we don't really know why. What I can tell you is that your music memory is located in a very different region of the brain, very close to where your language centers are, which makes sense. So you have a, a auditory cortex and la language regions that are kind of embedded in that temporal lobe just beneath uh, part of your frontal lobe. So different brain regions doing different things. Some of them are more susceptible to degradation. Others uh, are definitely, um, you can store them for long, long, long times, right? And somebody uh, else asked about, uh, my friend Kara says, why, why can I remember health, food, beauty facts so easily, but never the names of people and places? And um, another thing that's important about memory, and this can help help you when you're trying to remember things is that we are very good at remembering things that are stories. Um, a great example is um, you could say the king died and the queen died. But if you say the king died and then the queen died of sadness, there's more information in the second story, but it's easier to remember because it, it makes some kind of a sense and it's put into like a social dynamic kind of thing. So when you hear about a, like a, something for your health, like if you eat Blueberries, I'm making this up. Eat blueberries, you'll have more antioxidants. I don't know what. You know, that is relevant to your life. There's a causal relationship there. And, uh, you know, that's why I would, you know, I'm speculating here, but that's why I think that my friend Kara might find it easier to remember that kind of thing. Names of people and places are really quite arbitrary symbols. 
you know, somebody could be called, you know, whatever, and it doesn't really, you know, matter a whole lot uh, what their what their name is. It's not related to what they look like or anything like that. So uh, it's hard to incorporate a uh, arbitrary name into a causal context. And most people will say that they struggle with remembering names. How many, show of hands, how many people ha have a hard time remembering names? It's like right, so we've half. got most of the, well, more than that, most people say that it's tough. And and I, I would say I'm actually the opposite. I have uh, a near, like, autistic ability to remember names and, and, and faces. Uh, and I think it's because of teaching for so many years. And I'm, facial discrimination uh, uh, has become, like, an absolute talent of mine. And there's a region of your brain that actually uh, is responsible for um, specifically for memory for faces. And it's called the fusiform face area. And I'm sure if you put me in a brain scanner while I'm teaching, it'd be lighting up like a Christmas tree. Whereas most of us, it's like, I think a lot of it is fear too. You're afraid of remembering somebody's name and then, um, or you're, you're thinking about the next thing that they're, they're going to say. And then it's, it's gone. I've taught for many years, but I'm bad at it. So uh, let's go on to uh, do games such as crosswords and puzzles really help in maintaining brain health? This is a great question. Everybody's interested in this. And you might have seen ads for these brain development games, so-called games. Okay, they're really boring. Um, and uh, this, I, I just want to say this is a very hotly debated part of science. Scientists are not in agreement about this, but in general... Uh, well, like, let's take crosswords, for example. Um, there are very good studies and very good journals. Some of them show that it has some benefit, and others show that it does not. So, um, and these are both studies with hundreds of people in them, right, in very good journals. Uh, so we, we really don't know. Um, you know, th there's this idea that playing Call of Duty or something is a waste of time, yet you might, like, spend an hour doing Lumosity. Uh, but, you know, the... If you really want to improve your um, hand-eye coordination, your reaction time, da-da-da, playing these really violent video games is, is the best way to do it. It's actually much better for your brain and much more fun <laughs> to play a video game where you're shooting people than to use a brain training program that's boring as dirt. Uh, however, I don't recommend that either. <laughs> Because that's not really the kind of intelligence you want, probably, unless you're, <laughs> unless you're, unless you're training to kill somebody. I, so I'm just going to recommend, if you really want to maintain your brain health, what you should do is you should exercise your brain in the kinds of things you want to be good at. So exposing yourself to new ideas, discussing them, analyzing them, thinking about them, writing about them, You'll gain more knowledge. You'll have more tools in your memory that you can use to apply to new situations. You'll practice forming arguments and taking apart others, figuring out what's right and wrong. That's the kind of brain training that would, like, help you get a job, right? Not, not being able to use your controller really fast, you know? And certainly not uh, brain training games, which are, like, boring and expensive and useless. Mic drop. Okay. <laughs> Another great question. Um, so uh, somebody asked, how do diets, uh, vegetarian, vegan, gluten-free, ketogenic, et cetera, affect the brain? And I think this is a great question because I think, uh, you know, Jim and I really like to, to tackle subjects that are often in the popular media, right? And that there there is a lot of misinformation 
out there, particularly with regard to diet, and particularly with regard to diet and its effect on the brain. Because there is a lot of information out there on how diet might affect body, right? And your body composition, your weight, your uh, adiposity, your wellness. Uh, but now we're starting to enter this interesting domain of how uh, um, diets might impact your brain function. And the effects of diet on wellness are one and in brain function, I would say are probably the most prey to the false belief that cause, uh, correlation equals causation, right? So correlations are when two things are significantly associated together. So things like height and age, right? We're all, you know, as we age, we get taller, right? So people who are older tend to be taller. But as we know, uh, this is not necessarily causal, right? So we know that some, like, and you see this with, with little kids, right? Five-year-olds will look at me when I'm fairly tall for a woman and think that I'm much older than my mother, who is fairly short for a woman, right? So, uh, you know, another, you know, another famous uh, false correlation that people uh, talk about is the incidence of global warming having an impact on the population of pirates in the ocean, right? So as the earth has gotten hotter, uh, this has killed off all the pirates. Uh, and, and if you plot this on a graph, it actually is a positive correlation as, you know, global warming, you know, as the earth has gotten hotter, you know, actually it's negative correlation and then population of pirates goes down. Um, but that doesn't mean that it, another factor we're not thinking about is time, right? As time has gone on, the number of pirates in the seas have dispersed somewhat. Uh, so correlation and causation are, are two interesting things that we can think about statistically. Uh, but with diet, um, people like to believe these things, right? So they like to hear that when you eat a, a diet that is um, gluten-free, that you have low levels of inflammation in your blood, and therefore you have low levels of inflammation in your brain, and therefore you have a low risk of depression and anxiety. And I can tell you that all of those statements are absolutely um, poorly interpreted, right? So um, there is absolutely a link between your gut and your brain, right? So everybody is now hearing about the, this, the gut-brain axis and the microbiome. So what you eat influences your microbiota, right? So those little uh, hundreds, tens of thousands of little bugs that live in our gut. Uh, and they can signal to your brain, absolutely. There is many different ways in which they can signal to your brain. So it's, it's a really nice story to then make the, the, the leap that then what you're eating is affecting your mental health and can influence depression and anxiety. So this is what I'm sure people are asking about the brain, right? So it's, it's, it's a nice thought, but the reality is the data are very, very much in its infancy. And I literally finished reading uh, one of our uh, students in our department just wrote his whole entire PhD thesis, uh, of which I'm an examiner on Friday. Uh, shout out to you, Jesse, you're gonna be fine, don't worry. Uh, he wrote his whole thesis looking at this link between things like diet and exercise uh, and mental health outcomes. And it, it, the, the data are, and no slight to Jesse, very, very minor, right? You, and he's also looking at things like gene polymorphisms, how people's genetics might then moderate that relationship. And, uh, so my, my, you know, all that is to say, to summarize, there is not much that we know. And what we do know still really needs to be 
uh, taken to studies that are much larger, that we that are longitudinal studies, right? So you follow people over time. You don't ask them, hey, what did you eat last week? And then you 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 measure their scores of depression and anxiety, right? That is that is very. Um, difficult to make uh, um, significant conclusions related to that. But what I can tell you is that uh, typically what you might eat that's good for your body will probably be good for your brain, right? So things like a vegetarian diet, vegan diets, which are, they are good for your body, but they're also good for the planet. Uh, uh, those, uh, those diets tend to have the most robust research suggesting that they have uh, health benefits and probably will have brain benefits as well. Um, so now the two, the, so the most popular fad diet was gluten-free. Now we're entering into the ketogenic diet fad, right? And I would say, again, those might those diets. Well, not so much the gluten-free, but the ketogenic diet is is very popular for its belief that it's going to cause weight loss, right? But remember that being thin doesn't necessarily equate to being healthy. Uh, number one, and number two, the ketogenic diet. While it is beneficial, I don't know if it, you, anybody knows this, it is beneficial for treatment of certain ch forms of childhood epilepsy, so it reduces the seizure threshold, uh, you're also eating a whole bunch of fat. And that's not good for your arteries, and it's probably not good for your brain. Uh, so that's... Just to talk about the, um, the cause, correlation causation thing, I know I have two friends who are on the ketogenic diet, and both of them at one point were vegan. So they went from like eating no meat to eating almost all meat. And, and what that says to me is that it takes a certain kind of person to have the wherewithal, the interest to research it, to have the, and then the willpower to stick with it and try different things. That's a psychologically different person mm. than somebody who couldn't dream of, of going on either one of those diets, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you've got, so when you say, oh, the people who are on ketogenic diets are blah, blah, blah. Well, that is a special group of people <laughs> that yeah. are able to, Maintain that. Uh, to, yeah, yeah, to do it. So, yeah. you know, it, these studies are very hard to do because um, getting, you can't, it's very hard to just randomly pick people and force them to eat mm -hmm. in a certain way yeah. for months. Yeah. You know, they yeah. cheat, they whatever. And then if you just like, and, and you know, there's some studies they put them in a, in a, in a compound and they like weigh everything and they make them eat out of vending machines. Those are very expensive studies. Yeah, and also forces people not to eat intuitively, right? So you're eating all with your frontal lobe, right? You're, you're having to really be mindful of what you're eating, which as we know from studies in the past where they did this to army recruits, a very famous study where they 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 forced them to eat basically an anorexic diet uh, where they were consuming very, very little calories. Then so many of these army recruits then actually developed a syndrome not unlike anorexia because you're, you went from intuitive eating to eating with your, your, your cortex, right? Being very mindful and planning and thinking. And that's presumably a lot of the reason why diets fail is because people are that you're putting a ton of cognitive resources into eating, which is normally shouldn't be as much. Uh, and then that's why stress will, will totally undo you because as soon as the organism is stressed or drinking alcohol, uh, uh, you're, you're like all that cognitive resource gets di di diverted. And then you're, you're like, oh, tack with it. I'll eat my Dunkin' Donuts. Anyway, that was a major diversion. Next. All right. <laughs> Let's talk. Okay. Let's talk about sports here. Many of my otherwise smart friends who are diehard sports fans seem to lose their rationality when speaking about their team or the rival team. What is happening to them? Go, sends, go. Okay. <laughs> uh, so sports, um, we are going to have an upcoming ep uh, episode on sports. A future episode will be all about uh, the psychology of sports fans. Um, but I, I will say here that 
Um, the reason, the main reason people get really attached to sports teams is because they identify with those teams, meaning that they feel like the team represents them and, and it's, par it's part of their group, okay? So you get all these in-group, out-group effects. So in-group, out-group effects are basically if you perceive someone as being outside of your group, then you think that they're stupid and ugly and you don't care about them. That's, I'm, I'm summarizing, but this. Um, so we have a sports team you get these in-group, out-group out effects. And uh, if we want to talk about where sports come from, I think, you know, there are a lot of symbolic battles that happen in the natural world. So gorillas will tear up vegetation rather than fight. You know, there are, even crabs will, like, wave their claw around, and the one who has the bigger claw and waves it around more wins, and the other crab just walks away. So... There are lots of ways that animals have figured out how to resolve disputes without anybody getting really hurt. And um, I, I see sports as being a human extension of that, right? So we, we think of, uh, particularly when it's attached to your geography or your school or something like that, you're like, your team, and we say we're fighting, for, you know, the, fighting for the championship, or like we use the term fighting. And then some sports are just, they are fighting. You got fencing and wrestling and boxing and kendo and whatever, you know, they, they're, they are fighting with a couple of rules thrown in there. Um, so I think that they're, they, that some part, some deep part of their mind, and it must be very primal because sports fandom is universal and, and, and it's very, you know, it takes up a quarter of the newspaper for goodness sakes. I don't get it. But anyway, they, um, I think that it, it's striking something very primal about fighting for your in-group. All right, this next question is from my dad, so I better answer it. So uh, dad wants to know, how much research has been done on the effects of marijuana on judgment? Why do you think he wants to know that, Kim? <laughs> <laughs> what are you insinuating? Um, so, so I'm going to, sorry, dad, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change your question a bit. Um, so by judgment, I think what he means is decision-making, of which judgment is a, is a part of that, and of which decision-making is also a part of memory, right? And so there are quite a few studies that have been done both in rats or rodents um, and in humans looking at the effects of both acute and chronic uh, marijuana on uh, decision-making, attention, and memory. And so what I mean by acute versus chronic, so you either give a dose of uh, cannabis uh, or Delta 9 THC to a, a, a rat and you test it on a measure of short-term memory and lo and behold, they're terrible at it, right? So one of the things that marijuana does uh, is it affects your ability to plan, right? It affects, it causes what's called temporal disintegration. People, when they're high on cannabis products, time gets all wacky. Uh, you can't, you're, you're not really thinking sharply. Uh, your ability to, to plan for the future and to uh, um, make very quick um, decision-making, uh, it falls apart completely. And so absolutely that is what we see both in, in animals and in humans. And then also long-term effects. So people who are chronic users of marijuana, and then also they've done this in animals as well, uh, they uh, are 
if you give them tests of learning and memory, uh, decision making, uh, they perform poorer than individuals who don't have a long history of, of chronic cannabis use. So in some dad, uh, there has been quite a bit of research and what we know seems to say that, uh, that smoking cannabis products, uh, it does not do very well for judgment, decision making. Um, and of course, this is what makes it a bit worrisome, uh, given that we don't have a lot of information on how we're going to be testing people when they're driving. And uh, uh, I'm, there is a, quite a body of evidence to support the fact that, um, in particular, uh, young men are more likely to say that smoking cannabis prior to getting behind a vehicle is totally fine. Uh, and, and I actually did run a study here at Carleton last year, and we found uh, certainly that uh, uh, among males, uh, male undergraduate students who uh, were consumers of cannabis products, they were more likely to agree with this uh, or disagree with the, the set sentence, it is uh, safe, it, or agree, sorry, agree with the sentence, it is safe to drive while consuming cannabis. So uh, it affects your judgment, not only in while you're using, but also your ability uh, to um, to drive while high. So there you go. All right, next question. I hear lots of speculation and strident arguments about how human beings are inherently wired for fidelity, polyamory, etc. Is there any science to back up these claims? So this would be an anthropology question, but they are asking about whether we're wired for it. So, you know, that, that suggests the person's asking about um, genetic predispositions and that kind of thing. Uh, that would be a very hard thing to find because marriage patterns are at the level of a culture. You, you can't just see if one person is going to do it. Like you need at least another, you need to marry somebody. Uh, and usually you're taking cues from a larger culture. Um, so what do we have? Well, we do have anthropological studies of marriage patterns. And it seems that for the most part, for most of human history, humans have been mildly polygynous, which means uh, that their um, men may have more than one wife. And because there are equal numbers of men and women, this means that there are lots of men that have no mates at all. I should say mates, right? You know, wife or mate or something like that. Um, and they, they, we've also found that this tends to occur in places with great wealth inequality. So what happens is if there are some people, usually men, who are very rich and others that are just dirt poor, um, and, you know, it's a patriarchal society, the women, it is better, off, it's better for a woman financially to have one fifth of a rich guy than all of a poor guy. And then when the, the society becomes more equal in terms of wealth and it's more egalitarian, the societies tend toward monogamy. Okay. Where, you know, and then, and we get, and then we get these cultural feelings that that's the right thing to do and this and that. But uh, I will, but that's very recent. Mon monogamous societies seem to be a fairly recent phenomenon human. Um, and even in our culture, studies show that about 1% to 3% of the babies born, like the dad isn't the guy waiting for the baby in the other room. So, you know, there's, there's still, you know, people cheat. 
Um, but that is, you know, but, but this is not to say that we are particularly wired for this or that, because the thing with the um, wealth equality affecting marriage things is just kind of a rational response to the environment in some way, right? Um, so we, it might not be that there are any genes that determine how many mates we have. It's just that we have genes that give us decision-making processes and people just do what's best for them, right? That's another way to think about it. Um, another, another thing I found while I was uh, researching for this question is that there's a huge disparity in how many children a man can have versus a woman. So the record, the record number of children a female has had is 69. Cool. Mrs. Vasilyev, a wife of a Russian peasant in the 1700s, never had, I don't think she ever had a single child at a time. She had multiple children every time she got pregnant. And uh, 69, Kim's, Kim's had, I haven't had children, Kim has. So she's, she's thinking that 69 is a large number. However, <laughs> the man who has had the most children is the Sharifian emperor of Morocco, Moulay Ismail the Bloodthirsty. I'm sure he's a very loving father though. He, he had 1,024 children. Okay, so that is two orders of magnitude more and less painful than the 69 that uh, the woman had. So we get this situation where, uh, it, it, you know, a man could potentially have enormous number of children and many men had none at all. But most women, if they want them, can have children. They can find somebody willing to impregnate them, right? So it doesn't make as much sense for a woman to have a harem of 50 guys because she only needs one to be pregnant her whole life if she wants to be, right? But for, uh, if you're just looking at it purely from an evolutionary point of view, a man has a genetic incentive to um, have multiple mates. Wow. I, <laughs> I'm just like the number 69 is reverberating in my brain. It's so small though compared to a thousand. <sighs> All right. Uh, I like this question. Kim, in your opinion, what is the least important lobe of the brain? <laughs> okay, I see that the people are here. If you had one. to lose a lobe. Okay, so this is the way I'm looking at it. So for those of you that aren't in the know, the, the brain has four lobes. Some argue five, but we're going to go with five today. The frontal lobe, which I've already mentioned uh, in my brain um, model here, it's an orange, so the very front part of your brain. Uh, the most recently developed part of our brain, both uh, within us as humans and as a species. The very back part of our brain in green here in my model is your occipital lobe, and this is all primarily visual processing. Uh, the temporal lobe I've mentioned, which is where music memories are formed, also language. And uh, we heard other memories. So that's in yellow. That's just in behind your temples. And then uh, just in behind your frontal lobe, I'm trying to describe this for people who don't have a brain model in front of them, uh, in behind your frontal lobe and um, in front of your occipital lobe is uh, in blue here. That's your parietal lobe, and that's responsible for your sense of touch, um, your, your sense of your body in space. A lot of your, uh, some of your visual pathways will, will send up into your parietal lobe. So... 
least important idea. Like, like Jim and I disagreed. He was like frontal lobe, obviously. I was like, dude, like you'll never have a job. You'll never be married. Like, not that that's important, but you'll never, have, you know, you, well, could be, you know, be uh, like, like social functions are there, right? Like people's abilities to plan and to, to, to make sense of the world. So if you is, lose your occipital lobe, do you lose anything other than vision? Not really. That might be a good one. Yeah, well, again, depends, right? If you were a visual artist, right? Or Yeah, but you could find something else to I do. Know, I, I know, mean, I know. You know? Yeah. Like you, you can, if you lose your frontal lobe, you're not going to be an yeah. artist either. No, I know. Yeah, and then if you lose your temporal lobe, that's it. You don't remember anything. So you could live your life in a constant HM-like existence. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I, yeah, I think I'm going to go, I'm going to go occipital. I'm going to agree with you on that. I'll put that. I'll write that down somewhere and put that was, it in that's on my safe. That's my t- tombstone. Okay. Kim died. Why does... <laughs> the occipital lobe is not important in the end. <laughs> why, why does your subconscious work at night and wake you up with thoughts, concerns you may not have had during waking hours? Well, I don't wake up in the middle of the night with good ideas. I don't know what this person's talking about. But I, I will respond to the idea that sometimes ideas just come to your head out of nowhere. So many people... Um, might be taking a shower or taking a walk or what in just a solution to a problem that you've had just pops into your head from nowhere. Um, before we really had an uh, understanding of the unconscious mind, people thought that this, these were like divine interventions because that guy didn't come up with it. It came from somewhere. They didn't understand that they had a huge unconscious processing going on in their head. They thought they were muses. The word muse was what comes from this. But now we know that um, you've got a lot of your, a lot of your mind is is working when you're uh, then you're not aware of it, and sometimes it's like here you go here's that here's that report you asked for. One concept, and it's it's controversial, but in the creativity world, there's a concept called incubation. And incubation, the idea is you work hard on a problem, you think it from every point of view that you can, it's still unsolved, and then you go work on something else might be another problem. It might be uh, running or gathering food or something like that. And the idea is that your mind is incubating on the, the, the previous problem, problem A, we'll call it, okay? So you're thinking about problem A subconsciously while problem B is in the forefront of your mind. And then when the solution is there, it gets delivered up to your conscious mind. But I will say this is controversial. Um, when people do studies of, of things that you would think would have incubation and test to see if it helped, uh, the, the results are kind of mixed. Um, personally, I, I don't know if I'm using, I don't know if it's incubation, but I try to touch on all my most important projects every day to keep them fresh in my mind so that maybe if there is incubation, my subconscious mind can work on them, but also I can just return to them consciously and think about them too. So those are the thoughts about that. That's how I solve crossword puzzles. If I can't think of the answer, right? Anybody ever do this? Like, so you, you just put it aside and your mind is actually working on it while you're doing other things. And then you come back and boop, it's there. So this is the last question I'm going to answer or yeah, answer. Uh, Cause I, I'd like to open it up to audience questions, but um, I promised. Uh, so a friend of mine from high school, Mark asked this question and he's a pilot for WestJet, which kind of made me worried about why he was asking this question. But anyway, and uh, yeah, we are not uh, sponsored by WestJet, but if you would like to sponsor us, please give me a call. Um, all right, so I, I actually have a video, of an animation that I've created on long-term potentiation, which is uh, one of the 
proposed mechanisms for how uh, memories are formed in the brain. And what he's wondering is, um, how is it that if you can't remember something and then suddenly a, a trigger happens and then you're able to remember it, what's happening at the neural level? So I'm sure all of us have had this experience, right? You're like trying to think of like, what's that movie with like, you know, oh, the actress's name. And then you're like, it's Angela Gialina Jolie, I think. And she's in it maybe and you're, you're trying very hard to remember this and then all of a sudden boom something something hits and you're able to remember it and I think uh, the reality is again we don't really know what's happening but uh, if you go back to Hebb's uh, cells that fire together wire together uh, maybe you might be thinking of Brad Pitt right so maybe if somebody mentioned Angelina Jolie uh, the Brad Pitt circuit is located close enough to the Angelina Jolie circuit in your brain that act thinking about Brad Pitt will remind you of Angelina Jolie. So if you imagine it's like like a, a stone in in a and you, know, you drop it in the water and you have all those ripples that come out, right? The closer the the stone is, uh, uh, the, those ripples closer to the stone are are higher, greater in amplitude, right? And so the closer a memory is, or that trigger to to that memory, the more likely you are to, to remember it. So sometimes that's why it takes um, somebody saying something that'll trigger it. And that's that's the best answer I have. Or you can let it incubate and then you stop thinking about it and then it'll... There are different ways to get at the memories. Yeah. So you sometimes if you say things aloud, you say what you're trying to think of aloud because it goes into your ears and you hear it. It can access yeah. different areas. Sometimes when I uh, go to the tool chest to get a tool and I can't remember what tool it is, I just start moving my hand and the hand will start moving in the what the tool's supposed to do, like the hammer or the screwdriver or something like that. And so there's like a part of my mind that can control my motor function that can remember the tool even though I can't consciously bring it to mind. On that note, shall we open it up? Uh, so there's a lot of like quote-unquote research and like scientific evidence for like big five personalities traits and everything like that but there's such like a resurgence especially like amongst young people for like astrology or like other pseudoscientific like personality <laughs> traits and I'm just sort of wondering like why is it so much easier for us to find relations with our astrological signs than just like knowing I'm an extrovert or like any other scientifically supported personality like thing. So I'm not sure it's, it's true that people like astrology more than the big five personality traits because I think that neuroticism and agreeableness and openness to experience are things that we all accept and talk about. Extroversion, I mean, people talk about that all the time. So I, I'm, I'm not sure that uh, belief in astrology actually is, is larger than belief in the personality traits. Um, but there are a couple things that astrology has going for it that make it very attractive to human minds. And one of them is that it's old <laughs> and people, some people, you laugh, I've, there's laughter in the, in the house, but some people think that the older an idea is, the more credibility it has. And I think that this comes from some notion that bad ideas will eventually disappear, which they often do. Okay, so I think that it's not completely stupid to think that older ideas are good. There's something about, but there's something about them that made them stick. Maybe it's because it was a good idea. Maybe it was just because it's, it, it attracts our mind in some other way. 
Um, astrology also connects us to the stars, which is a very, very flattering thing. It makes, I mean, like all, you know, that where the moon was and the Mars was when you were born has to, you know, affects your personality. You know, it feels, it makes you feel important. It's a, it's a, it's a way to dramatize the sky in a way. So, um, and then everybody else is talking about it too. And keep in mind that the astrology you're probably thinking of, the zodiac and all that, that is, that is the Western astrology. And there are at least two others I know of that nobody talks about, you know. So it gets a cultural momentum, right? And then it's in the newspaper. And the newspaper astrology is really weird because if you really believe in astrology, you don't go to the newspaper because those people are not even expert astrologers. And if you're like me and think astrology is garbage, you don't read it either. So the only people reading the newspaper astrology are people who are just like a little bit like it or something. They kind of like it. It's a very curious thing. Hi there. I've been enjoying the podcast so far. My horoscope said this was a good day for for podcasts. So, <laughs> um, My question is, do you have an opinion as to whether there are any substances um, or natural health products that are genuinely nootropics, cognitive enhancing foods or amino acids or anything like that? Sorry, so your question is, are there any natural health products that ha have a nootropic effect? Sure there's lots effect? of, yeah, unnatural health products. Yeah, uh, right. So for those of you that don't know what a nootropic agent is, a nootropic means that it, it has a cognitive enhancing effect, right? So um, a classic nootropic agent that is ex like as a drug is a drug that will impact uh, acetylcholine or adrenaline, so things that are promoting lots of um, activity in your frontal lobe that makes you very, very attentive. And certainly these nootropic agents have been around for a while. Uh, they were um, tested out on World War II fighter pilots uh, to keep them awake and alert during times of obviously combat. Uh, in terms of health food products, is there anything that you've heard of specifically? Because there's nothing to that, that is coming to my head off L-theanine, there's certain... Um, right, like, so, like, the amino acid, uh, yeah, blends, like, yeah. Um, or even just good fats or, uh, you know, less sugar, <laughs> just... Right, well, I diet. yeah. So we did have a question, I didn't have time to get to it, but somebody's asking about omega-3 fatty acids, um, which is one of the polyunsaturated fat, fatty acids, of which another one is the omega-6, right? And so uh, there is some evidence that, in fact, eating a diet that has almost a one-to-one -one ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 has cognitive, I don't want to say enhancing, but beneficial effects because as humans we actually did evolve particularly during the paleolithic era when our brain was undergoing the most rapid uh, um, evolution let's say uh, that we lived close to the sea and so we had a, a huge source of fish right and th those fatty fishes that then uh, when you think about the brain which is uh, we have the myelin sheath that is very fatty in nature. This promoted uh, brain development and as such uh, is now thought to be necessary for um, normal brain functioning. So certainly there are uh, there is evidence for certain f like the paleo diet, which does emphasize the, that one to one ratio uh, that is better for your cognition. And there's also uh, interesting data showing that if 
if you look at the number of um, look at countries that consume the most of, amount of fish and then the incidence of depression and anxiety, the countries that consume the most fish have the least incidence of depression and anxiety. So there is some evidence for that. In terms of cognitive enhancement, like actually making you like more attentive and alert, nothing that to my knowledge, I mean, these amino acid blends, they're... Uh, they're not regulated by the FDA, so there's very little actual research that's done on them because they're marketed as a health food product, so they're not regulated to the same extent. But as I don't, I don't reject anything, and I don't, um, you know, like I'm a skeptic about everything, right? So I think um, uh, there's always going to be something that's on the market that is going to claim something. You just know that a lot of things don't actually cross the blood-brain barrier, right? So about 90% of everything that's available on the market in terms of like a health food product that has claims to have a drug effect actually doesn't cross into the brain because it has to compete with other large neutral amino acids to get up there. Okay, thank you everyone who submitted questions and for the audience that's sitting right here. And thanks for listening to Minding the Brain. This episode of Minding the Brain was edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by CKCU, the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University. And made possible, in part, by the brain's dopaminergic system, without which our hosts would have no ambition to do anything much less create a podcast. Music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.